Hi, welcome to The Parlor, featuring conversations with rhetoricians about rhetoric. In this episode, we talk with professor and director of the University Writing Center, Patricia Roberts-Miller. Okay, so I'm here with Professor Roberts-Miller uh, of University of Texas at Austin. Uh, say hi, Professor Roberts-Miller. Hi. <laughs> Okay, so today we'll be talking about her scholarship, and specifically we read an article in our RHE 321 class about demagoguery and charismatic leadership, and we'll be discussing that article. But first, uh, Professor Roberts Miller, uh, please, we'll talk about yourself. Uh, we'll talk about you for a little bit. Uh, so just what universities have you been affiliated with? So where did you get your education? Where have you taught? Uh, and is there one that you like the most, I guess? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, so I, I um, did all my degrees at University of California, Berkeley, mm -hmm. uh, in the rhetoric department there. And then my first job was University of North Carolina, Greensboro, uh, in North Carolina, obviously. Uh, and then uh, University of Missouri, Columbia, and then here. And yeah, this is, I think, my favorite. Okay. Is there a reason? Or? Um, I, so I, I mean, I really like big um, public universities. I think they're really fun. I love the diversity of Texas, um, both in terms of country of origin, place of origin, um, just all sorts of stuff. It's just really diverse, and I really think that's fun. Hmm. So we read and discussed a chapter of your book that was about demagogues and demagoguery. We'll get to that later. And I know this may be difficult because of your years of scholarly participation, but could you tell us some of the other topics that you tend to study besides demagogues and demagoguery, perhaps some generic topics or topics that you particularly remember fondly? Well, so I always describe my work as train wrecks and public deliberation. <laughs> um, and most people in rhetoric are really interested in times that some um, some speaker like changed everybody and made everybody better. And I'm actually interested in times that communities talk themselves into really stupid things. Mm -hmm. And um, when they had all the evidence they needed to make better decisions. So not times that people made a bad decision because they didn't understand how germs work or something like that, but times that people really could have done it. Um, they could have come to the right decision and they didn't. So that would be things like um, the Athenian decision to invade Sicily, um, Hitler's refusal to order a retreat from Stalingrad, mm -hmm. um, the LBJ's uh, uh, decisions in the summer of 1965 regarding Vietnam, mm -hmm. the U.S. commitment to segregation and slavery. So, yeah, some fairly dark stuff. Oh, so is it, it's usually hostile things. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay, also, I, I think Mark said that you uh, have also studied puritanical rhetoric or something yeah. like that. So that seems a little far out <laughs> from the rest. Yeah. Uh, why, why did you decide to study that? Well, um, so I did my dissertation on John Muir and his mm -hmm. attempt to stop the damming and flooding of the Hetch Hetchy Valley. And what I thought was really interesting in that was that he kept identifying himself as um, a voice crying in the wilderness, mm -hmm. Um, as, you know, he was Jesus kicking the merchants out of the temple. 
and how interesting it was. I noticed that so many people use those metaphors for themselves or Daniel and Lion's Den, even times when people were actually supporting something tremendously popular. They weren't victimized. <laughs> they weren't, you know, they weren't. So I was like, where did that come from? And initially, um, and I, you know, I think it basically came out of the American Puritans. And initially the stuff on the American Puritans was going to be the first chapter in a book that would then go all the way up to John Muir. But it ended up being a book on its own. So. Interesting. Okay. That just ties into my question about uh, our, I guess, my superficially are upon a, a generic glance. It seems like you focus on things that are hostile, as I said before. <laughs> yeah. So war or racism, mm -hmm. things that divide and just puritanical rhetoric doesn't at least seem like that to me so based on my limited knowledge yet. Yeah, what I found really interesting about the Puritans is how ambivalent they were about democracy. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, they had very democratic practices regarding church organization and mm -hmm. government. On the other hand, they really didn't believe in persuasion. So what is it like to have deliberation without persuasion? And, and I actually, and I think that there are a lot of ways that they thought about as I said, their ambivalence about persuasion that um, we still have. And I don't know that we got it from them or if it's just sort of humans' own ambivalence about persuasion. But it's that, but that was an aspect of them that I found really, really interesting. What courses have you taught at UT? And is there a class or are there classes that you particularly love? Oh, wow. That's it. That, okay. So I, I taught freshman comp a bunch. Mm -hmm. um, both the 306 and 309, and then also uh, courses on demagoguery, obviously, um, racism, a uh, course on Hitler, um, uh, the hi kind of history of rhetoric course, a uh, course on models of democracy. Um, those are all undergraduate courses. I feel like I'm forgetting some too. And oh, free speech, that was a really fun one. Um, various ideas about free speech. And and then, yeah, so those, those are the ones at the undergrad level. And I don't really have a favorite. Um, oh, and then there's one also, Deliberating War, uh, and, you know, how it is that people decide to go to war, how they, how they make decisions during war, um, and uh, that one's fun. Mm, see, and that ties into your uh, Athenians with yeah. Sicily and stuff like that. Interesting. It, uh, did you look at Athens and Sicily in that course? Yeah, or? I do. It, in, um, I, uh, in that course, about maybe at least a third and maybe as much as a half is about the Peloponnesian War. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And that way, um, students can think about the rhetoric of it without taking one side or another. Mm -hmm. uh, with If you talk about more recent wars, it's it's hard for them to focus on the rhetoric because they're so concerned about whether it was right or wrong to go to war um, and all sorts of, it's just hot cognition with those issues. Whereas nobody's going to be like, yeah, Athens, you know, that's not, <laughs> that's just not what they're going to do. So I'm going to move on to your article. What is a demagogue? <laughs> well, um, uh, we, us, we're all demagogues for one thing. Um, so a lot of people focus on the demagogue and I tend not to, but basically I would say a demagogue is just someone who's using demagoguery. See, and that's what I got whenever I read your article. Yeah. It was uh, the demagogue is the least important thing. Yeah. The like eventual demagogue that gets put on a pedestal. Uh, it's this culture that's the most important and the people around the demagogue.
Thus ends our introduction of Professor Robert Miller and our general topic of conversation. What follows next will be a conversation of ideas of sorts. The following section focuses on our Rhetoric 321 classes, ideas and questions about what Robert Miller wrote on and her relevant answers and insights. Yeah, I have questions about engaging in demagoguery. How do people engage in demagoguery necessarily? Are they just peddling, I don't want to say misinformation, but perhaps peddling hate against a certain group? Or what are the various ways that they can do that? Yeah, and so instead of talking about um, policies, demagoguery reduces things to us versus them. Mm -hmm. And as though there's some sort of zero-sum fight going on between us. So anything that hurts the other side helps us, and anything that helps them hurts us. Mm -hmm. um, and so when people think about it that way, and they think that all of our problems are caused by the premise of, by the presence of this outgroup, that's when they're engaged in demagoguery. So you can get demagoguery on really stupid stuff, right? Mm -hmm. You can get it on... Um, sports, you know, people will be arguing about, um, yeah, you know, a change to rules or something, mm -hmm. and and they'll start to um, say, oh, the only reason that people want this change in rules is because they're bad people with bad motives. Uh, you see it on YouTube, right? <laughs> like, mm -hmm. I really shouldn't read YouTube comments, but I can't stop <laughs> oh, myself. Oh, you definitely shouldn't. Just trust me on that one. Oh. Yeah, but um, but you see it there, you know, and mm -hmm. and that's a place I think is funny because there's an awful lot of demagoguery about young people. Mm -hmm. You know, kids these days, and um, yeah, and like, who cares, right? <laughs> whether kids these days are or not something has nothing to do with whether that's a good song. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so you, it's it's just everywhere. In this clip, Robert Miller gives a great explanation of exactly how pervasive the issue of demagoguery has become. Specifically, she details the practice of us versus them mentality politics. Both our classroom discussion and Robert Miller offer ways in which we think this practice influences hot button issues such as identity politics. Those ideas are what follows. relate my response back to what Jacob said but also some of what you said when we talk about identity politics and how it could lead or whether it is linked to, demag to demagoguery I think what we're missing there is the fact that identity politics has risen as a response to demagoguery in American discourse and I mean Yes, it could have been Trump, it could have been something else, because it, it's not Trump that has made America racist. I mean, not to offend any of y'all, America is inherently racist, America is a white supremacist country. And the way this white supremacy has been facilitated and like how, how it has organized relationship between the majority and the people who are oppressed is through, you know, it's capitalist relations. So when we think about environmental issues or when we try to frame feminist issues, no, these are all coming from a place in which we are trying to, trying to respond to the demagoguery that Trump appeals to. It could be Trump, it could be anyone else. Trump didn't invent anything new in American discourse, and I don't think it's fair for us to think of identity politics and when people of color and when, like, when women say, hey, we want representations, we are seeing this issue as us against white supremacy, that this is somehow the same, because we're not, we're not operating from the same position, we're operating from a place in which 
we are a minority and we do not have the kind of institutional power and the kind of cultural power that um, white supremacists and whoever, whoever votes for Trump has. I think that Davia, the student in the previous clip, presents a great case linking demagoguery and identity politics. We're fortunate to have also gotten to ask Professor Roberts Miller her thoughts on how these two topics are related, and that's what follows here. In class, I remember we talked a lot about, or at least for a brief minute, talked about identity politics, and it asked, or we're discussing whether or not that was demagoguery or us participating in a culture of demagoguery. Do you have any comments on that so yeah. far? Um, yeah, and, and I'm not wild about the term identity politics because I don't think there's ever been a time we haven't been engaged in identity politics. And, and so somehow identity politics always seems to, people only use that to mean marginalized identity politics. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, if you read the Federalist Papers, say, it's all about what, not all about, but there's a lot in there about what are the identities of good deliberators. And that's, and what's a, what's a structure that we can have in a, in a constitution that is going to get people who have the right kind of identity um, into positions of deliberating. So, yeah, I mean, it's, um, that, was a, that was all about identity. Interesting. Yeah, because whenever we talk about identity politics today, we do just mean marginalized people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we just had a very interesting discussion. And I initially, just when I was sort of thinking things out, I was like, is identity politics demagoguery? And then someone just chimed in and was like, I mean, it's a reaction. This uh, identity politics uh, of marginalized people is just a reaction. It's already happening, is what she said. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, so that there's an identity that's considered normal mm-hmm. and um, and correct and the ones with correct judgment. And then that that is going to mar- and that's what marginalizes these various identities, because when you talk about marginalized identities, sometimes you're talking about identities that are actually, uh, if not a majority, at least a plurality. And so it's really interesting that you, that you can get a minority that will marginalize um you know, women, right? Mm-hmm. How how can women be a marginalized group when some it's like women are fifty one percent or something, right? Yeah. So yeah. interesting. Yeah. Moving forward, another topic that both parties really looked into was that of the role of media in demagoguery. Case and Hunwick, who's featured next, both brings this question to the forefront and gives some insights on the topic. I'm wondering, we've kind of mentioned like the differences between demagoguery, like modern demagoguery and comparing it to the past, but I'm wondering... I don't know that we've outlined quite like what is the role of media, particularly like propaganda arms that support a certain arm of government. Um, Because John Oliver has this really interesting piece on Trump and the truth. And he says that whatever Trump says, it suddenly gets picked up in like, you know, Fox News and other political pundits. And so suddenly whatever like wild conspiracy he's sort of drummed up, it's suddenly legitimized by having other voices sort of talk about it. Um, so it's not that he's pulling on something that already exists. Maybe maybe the fear, you know, of, of Democrats or the fear of immigrants has existed, you know, within that group. 
Um, but the actual talking points that people then sort of start to parrot and kind of rally around, those things are initially created by him just sort of on a maybe even a passing comment. And then suddenly state controlled media like picks it up and sort of gives it out to the millions. Well, um, so the media uh, um, in that era was had a lot of demagoguery. In fact, that's when I started writing about demagoguery. And I was working on the book on slavery and noticing a lot of real similarities to our current culture, but especially that it was a very factionalized media so that you could just read, you know, you, you would read a newspaper that was your political agenda and promoted your political agenda. And that might be the anti-Catholic newspaper or the anti-Masonic newspaper or the Whig newspaper or something. And then I would read mine that was equally um, specialized and, uh, and equally propagandistic and often engaged in a lot of demagoguery. So one of the things that that created was a lot of stuff kind of like Pizzagate events that never actually happened, but got repeated so much that people sincerely believed that they had happened and then voted and acted on the basis of um, the need to prevent something that never needed to be prevented because it hadn't happened. <laughs> so, um, And then I was seeing that in, you know, 2003 of people talking about, um, again, all sorts of incidents that never actually happened. And uh, in in making decisions about whether to invade Iraq, um, and it's because you know they were getting their news from very very specific, highly factional sources, mm-hmm. uh, and and so so I think it's really the media. Well, it's not just the media. So the media offers these very demagogic ways of thinking about politics and culture, and then people go for those. Those media make more money. Mm. They're more just they're just more profitable. Okay, so what else will be going on with that? And one thing that I also was going to ask is: is charismatic leadership also about the immediate followers? So the people right around the demagogue who has a bunch of charisma is it about how they also talk about the demagogue how, yeah their rhetoric too yeah and they, and um i've come to think that that's the most important part with all of it because with the the people who end up doing a lot of damage it's um because they've got so many people who are following them and who are promoting their agenda and a lot of people who um, got involved with nazis for instance Hitler was not the first person that they, the first Nazi that they heard speak or whose work they read. Um, they listened to Rahm or Goebbels or Himmler or, you know, somebody else, um, Strasser, somebody, and really liked that. And then from there went to Hitler. So first they heard somebody talking about Hitler often. Um, but the other part of it that, okay, so at the beginning you asked, oh, what, yeah, what are some of the other um, characteristics that lead to charismatic leadership? So one of them is that um, it's about judgment, really. It's not about ethos, but it's about a perception of how is it that we do make a good decision. And so a lot of people uh, believe that the correct course of action at any given moment is obvious to uh, someone who has good judgment. And so then they go looking for someone who appears to have that kind of good judgment, that instantaneous good judgment. Really? Okay, that's interesting. So uh, given the pieces of demagoguery, 
the ones I just listed, demagogues, immediate followers, and this culture, uh, what order do they appear in usually? So is it just this culture of demagoguery first? And that's honest. You said earlier that's the only thing you need. And then perhaps some immediate peddlers of the demagogue and then maybe a demagogue himself. Yeah, I think that it's the, the culture of demagoguery. What I haven't figured out is is why that seems to rise and fall, why you get cultures of demagoguery um, and what it is that leads to them. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't. It's not necessarily social upheaval. It's not necessarily economic uh, downturns. Um, sometimes I think uh, new technologies can help it. So part of what contributed to the demagoguery of the um, about slavery was the cheap mail and uh, cheap printing of newspapers. Um, clearly, the internet has fomented demagoguery. Uh, we're in a, an economy of attention, and so demagoguery is going to get more clicks than you know a long reasoned <laughs> um, piece. But uh, but that doesn't apply to the Athenians. They mm-hmm. didn't have a new technology. So yeah, so I, I'm I'm not sure what leads to a culture of demagoguery. Well, that's comforting. Anyway, <laughs> okay. So this is my last question. Unless, of course, I have a follow-up to your answer. Or, yeah, your answer. Uh, you've written a book about demagoguery aimed at a popular audience, Demagoguery and Democracy. This book was recently assigned to all the first-year students at the University of Maryland. Uh, what do you think students like us can do in response to demagoguery? How can we resist such an appealing discourse? How can we counter it? Um, so I think it's really fun to talk to people, uh, to young people about this, because I think that your generation really understands the damage that can be done by this kind of pile up that can, or piling on that can happen in, um, because of social media. And so I think that it, uh, you guys tend to understand this notion of a culture of demagoguery better than people who are older and who are accustomed to thinking about a demagogue being the problem um, because you've seen this kind of leaderless damage. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, so um, so that's one thing I think is just um, just knowing that this, this leaderless damage can be damaging. Mm-hmm. Um, in addition, the, what I always say to people is um, so the other factor in all this is what's called inoculation, which is that the media spends a lot of time telling you not to listen to any other media. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's, what, that's also what happens in a culture of demagoguery. And they'll tell you, here's what they're going to tell you. And they'll, they'll make you feel informed. They'll make you feel like you're hearing both sides of the argument. And you really aren't. You're hearing the two versions that it's most useful for that media to tell you. So that's one thing is to is to try to find the best arguments for um, opposition and dissenting points of view that you can. And and that's hard to do. Mm-hmm. Google makes it hard. Mm-hmm. The algorithms are going to keep you in a world that is going to be pleasing to you. Um, also, it's not both sides. So it's not just like looking at the Democrat versus the Republican side. Um, there aren't two sides on issues. There are a lot of sides on issues. And... So you can get, and you can get something like, um, okay, so here's the example I always end up using. Um, so you, if you think about there being two sides to an issue, and it's Democrats versus Republicans, then you've got these groups that you really can't explain. So for instance, libertarians are um, in favor of almost no social safety net, um, 
and uh, but they tend not to be in favor of interventionist foreign policy, and they but they they tend also to be in favor of prison reform and either decriminalizing or um, drug use or at least you know sending people to rehab instead of jail. Um, a lot of Christians uh, are progressive Christians, meaning that they tend to vote Democrat, and um, and they will be often in favor of decriminalizing or, um, you know, opting for rehab for drug use. Interestingly, so are a lot of conservative Christians, not all, but some. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you've also got people who are, you know, just straight up progressives. So you've got these, you can't put those into like left versus right. They just don't quite work that way. Um, but they can all agree on decriminalization of drugs mm-hmm. and, and prison reform. So when you're also thinking about hearing the the best argument on either side, it's not just going and finding out what the Republican view is or the Democrat view is. It's actually going and trying to figure out who's opposed to prison reform and what are their arguments. Instead of necessarily staying in your own faction right. or looking at the other uh, the other faction, big faction, yeah. it's actually looking at each issue specifically yeah. and looking at for and against. Yeah. Interesting. Sounds tiresome. Yeah, yes. <laughs> it is. That's kind of the problem. So it seems clear. This type of rhetoric remains pervasive even today, and it's a challenge that I extend to each of us to be mindful of how we contribute to this issue. This has been another episode of The Parlor, featuring Patricia Roberts-Miller. I'd like to thank Jacob Miller, Parker Neri, and Jose Morales for helping put this composition together. Furthermore, I want to thank the students whose comments were featured and made the basis of our conversation with Professor Roberts-Miller, that is, Rebecca, Kaysen, and Davia. None of this would have been possible without the great people over at the Digital Writing and Research Lab. Do note that none of the opinions expressed in this podcast represent either the views of the Department of Rhetoric and Writing or the University of Texas at Austin. Each speaker spoke solely on account of their own beliefs and ideas. Thank you for listening.